they got 44 million views. Wow. 44 million views. We're talking bar soap. Illustrates that if a program is managed well under, it draws upon branding principles, it can do well and it can do enormous goods for the business brand. Welcome to the Brandmaster Podcast, show specialized in helping branding professionals and entrepreneurs to build brands using strategy, psychology, and creative thinking. What's up, brand builders? Stephen Horahan here on the Brandmaster Podcast, and in this episode, I'm joined by an undisputed branding legend, Mr. David Acker. Now, David Acker is a branding veteran and pioneer, and once hailed as the father of modern branding. David has authored no fewer than 17 books on branding and marketing, including classics such as Building Strong Brands and Acker on Branding. In 2015, he was introduced into the American Marketing Association Hall of Fame for his lifetime achievements in marketing. And on today's episode, David opens up about what brand awareness actually is and how to achieve it, how to create modern signature brand stories, and three actionable tips for brands to get ahead in modern markets. So if you want to learn from a true legend in branding about how to strategically build brands using modern techniques, then stick around for this episode of the Brandmaster Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brandmaster Podcast. I am delighted to have the one and only Mr. David Acker on the show with us today. Now, if you don't know David Acker, you're probably new to marketing and branding because this man has been around for a long, long time, and he has written many, many books and, uh, you know, the likes of Managing Brand Equity, Building Strong Brands, Acker on Branding, and his latest to Creating Signature Stories and Owning Game-Changing Subcategories. And we'll talk uh, about different aspects of different parts of your books throughout this chat, David. Um, but I- I'd like to kind of get an understanding of, of how you became so obsessed about branding. I, I know for me, my obsession with branding is probably only a little over 10 years old, but yours goes back probably 40, 45 years, maybe. How, how did that all come about? Well, uh, I was working at, uh, I was teaching strategy. I wrote a book on strategy. And uh, I came to believe that companies were too focused on short-term financials. Mm. And instead, they ought to build assets. And uh uh, so I sort of uh, did a, a, a queer a career epiphany and decided I'd be, you know, devote my career largely to, to help them do that. And uh, if I, I looked around and uh, my background included uh, work I'd written, in fact, books and taught courses on advertising, market research, as well as strategy. And so uh, And I did a little study that asked people, what is your uh, sustainable competitive advantage? And of the, uh, it got 41 answers, something like that. And the numbers one, three, and 10 were all associated with branding. Mm. It was uh, 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 perceived quality, brand recognition, and customer base. So So roughly, roughly what year was that? Oh, that was in the late 80s. Okay. And, and so uh, it seemed pretty obvious to me that uh, of all the kinds of, of assets to build, I was best suited to work in the branding area. Mm. And so I, uh, uh, I, started, I started off. And, and at that time, branding, brand equity was becoming 
kind of a big deal because people were a little bit burnt out in trying to achieve growth by cost reduction. And uh, they were, in the fact, destroying brands. And they came to realize, I think, that they needed to build brands. And in fact, some of their brands have been destroyed by uh, price competition and, and, uh, and sameness. And so uh, there was a great interest in building brands and providing growth platforms, but nobody had defined what brand equity was. So my first book was to uh, define brand equity and not only define it, but to, uh, to sort of discuss the 16 or 17 ways in which brand equity was valuable to a company. Mm. And, and, and you, were, you, you said before that you were teaching strategy. Well, you were teaching strategy more so at that time from a business point of view. So from your perspective and, and your philosophy, what, what is the difference between business strategy and brand strategy? Well, uh, they're sort of complementary. Mm. Uh, brand is really the face of a business strategy, and uh, and uh, a business strategy is, is enabled by a brand. You you can only go far with a business strategy unless you have a brand to support it. So they have to they have to work together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in your 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 book, managing brand equity, that was. That was you kind of putting a flag in the ground to define brand equity. And as you said, no one had really defined brand equity back then. There wasn't this universal understanding about what it was. And you, you kind of distilled it into awareness, image, and loyalty. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about that, about how you see brand equity? Well, I, as I said, I not only uh, talk about... Um, Awareness, which which I now describe as as uh, a brand visibility and credibility, which is the basis of brand relevance. So that's sort of the first pillar. But uh, I would also then say, well, what does brand uh, awareness give you? And it gives you, uh, you know, people recognize the brand. They figure it's, you know, there's some reason I'm recognizing it. it's probably pretty good. It, it's uh, sort of the first stage in buying. You have to be aware of the brand. And so it has a lot of things it gives you. And uh, brand image is, uh, you know, your perceptions, what you think about it. But, but the uh, unique part of my definition was loyalty. Mm. Most people perceive brand strength as, as sort of awareness and image. Mm. And, uh, and, uh, some of the other academics, that's how they define brand equity. And I added brand loyalty. And that was really, um, really a game changer. Mm. Because when you, when you think of brands as, as customer loyalty, it changes everything you do. It's no longer a communications problem. Mm. It's, uh, it's, it's a brand experience problem. It's a, a brand innovation or a product innovation problem. It's a, uh, uh, it's a brand. It's a it's a customer engagement problem, and so that takes you in an entirely different way, and it it automatically gives you a, a you know long term customer value perspective on things you do. Mm. And in terms of what you said before about uh, loyalty being so important, a lot of people would would speak about awareness and and image, but. Really, loyalty is the, the, 
the holy grail of branding. Now, going back, you know, 40 years, um, the way marketing was taught in, in universities was that, you know, branding was this subset of, of marketing. And now it seems that the brand has become the entity and the brand now dictates so much more about the business than just the marketing side of things. How have you seen the evolution of branding from a subset of marketing that it once was to where it is now? Well, it's, it's really dramatic. It's changed business, it's changed culture, it's changed organizations because, uh, uh, it, you know, well, brand management started in the 1930s, around 1932. Uh, a fellow at G, a P&G wrote a memo saying what a brand team should do because he wanted to hire one. He was, he was a brand manager for a, um, for sort of the second, uh, brand in, in soap or something. And, and, uh, he wanted more people and they asked him why. And he wrote a three page manual, despite the fact that Procter and Gamble, you could only write one page memos at the time. Mm. But, uh, that same person went on to become a secretary of defense later and a president of PNG, PNG. So it was a, um, he had a very successful career, but the, uh, uh, his idea was what you do is you look at data. Find out weak spots in the in the market share trend, and you you immediately jump in with some promotions or pricing or improved distribution to correct those problems. And that's that was what brand management was. Mm. Well, if you flash forward to brand equity times, it's uh, it's it's no longer uh, what's how are we going to you know correct the sales decline this week. But rather, it's you have a time horizon of one, two, three years, and you're dealing with entirely different variables. You're now dealing with strategic variables. You're dealing with the, um, you know, the composition of the product or service. You're dealing with a brand experience and so on. And so uh, you're, you know, you're, and, and it's all tied to business strategy now. It's, it's not tactical or the business strategy in the, in the past. It's, it's the business strategies on the table. Mm. And who does it changed? It used to be that the brand was done by, uh, you know, several levels below the chief marketing officer. It was mm. tactical. Yeah. And, and the chief marketing officer didn't even pay much attention about it. The, mm. Somebody else was look, checking the data and so on. And, uh, and now the marketing has the seat at the executive table. He's the vice president of marketing or the CMO, and and uh, he's part of the executive team. And so he's intimately involved in strategy, and he's contributing a strategy because he has, you know, access to customer insights. He's got access to to market trends and to forces within the marketplace. So mm-hmm. it's very different. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, the impact of perceptions on the, the buying decision over time. I mean, so much has been learned, um, you know, in, in the last 10 or 20 years through neuroscience as well about how decisions are made. You know, it, it's, it's just become so much more, uh, you know, people have become so much more aware of the power of branding and what those perceptions do. So it's, you know, the, the, the business strategy has always been important, but now the brand strategy is up alongside it because people understand the importance of those perceptions. 
we, uh, we, we touched a little earlier on, on brand awareness, but in terms of practical uh, advice, because a lot of small brands or, or uh, small businesses, that's their first port of call. They want to achieve that brand awareness. They want to get some traction in the market. What would be some steps that a, a, a business could take to first achieve some kind of awareness in the market? And what, what then are the benefits of that and how can they springboard off that? Well, um, I, I advocate that they try to understand what they want their brand to stand for. And I have what I call the brand identity model. I now label it as the brand vision model, but it's, it, it, you're really asking the question, how do I want my brand to be perceived? Mm-hmm. What, uh, what is the, uh, you know, what are the pillars? What are the, and, what, and within all those pillars, and the, which might be eight or 12 of them, which are the most important? And uh, how can I make sure that some combination of those pillars create differentiation, they resonate with the target audience, and there's something I can deliver? And, uh, and so those are the three things you're, you're looking for. And, and if, you're, if you're not there yet, you either have to have a program in place to get there mm-hmm. or you have to back away yeah. because you don't want to put out something you can't deliver. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the first step. And then yeah. the second step is to take those pillars and position your brand by uh, getting people to look at their, their choice in, in, in those eyes. And if you're lucky, you create a whole new subcategory of your own where you're uh, the dominant brand by creating a unique set of features or benefits or personality or values or something. Yeah, and, and look, we'll jump on to, to uh, subcategories and owning subcategories a little bit later. But going back to one of your other books, Brand Relevance, Making Competitors Irrelevant, what are the, the factors that make one brand more relevant to a specific market segment than other brands, than their competitors? Well, what you have to do is to create subcategories and create uh, a, a sort of a new buying a set of, uh, of criteria. So you have to develop what I call a must-have. You have to have some sort of uh, attribute of your product or service or some kind of connection with a customer, some kind of customer relationship that's different than anybody else, and it becomes in the mind of customers a must-have. They must have this, and they start – uh, avoiding any other offering that doesn't have that must have. Mm, mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, so I, I speak about brand relevance uh, as well, but when, when I read your books, you know, obviously, you know, we 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 talk a lot or, or you reference a lot, the, the kind of bigger brands of the world. And I think the smaller brands now are starting to catch up a lot more in terms of, the importance of brand strategy certainly the small business owners they understand a lot more about brand strategy just generally business owners understand a lot more about brand strategy and you know relevance as well as you know being completely different and and changing the the category or creating subcategories often it's it's about really connecting with who the person is the the type of personality they are the the attributes that they have through the, the messaging of the brand. How important is that messaging to make sure that it hits the right person in the right way? 
Well, it, it really depends on the product class and within that, the brand itself. It, and it depends on its heritage. It depends upon, uh, uh, you know, what, what kind of personality it's able to express, uh, what kind of values lie behind it, what kind of people are behind the organization, especially with a service or a B2B business. Mm. People are really making a relationship with a company, not a product. And uh, they want to know about that product if it shares its values and so forth. Mm. Um, so it, yeah, it, it, it really depends. I mean, brand personality for some brands in some situation is really important for others. It's, it's not a, uh, not, not really a good option. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I, I, I do agree with that. Brand personality is, you know, it, it is a big topic, but you know, depending on the industry, it is more effective in some areas than it is in others. Now, I'd like to move on to uh, to talk about your book, Creating Signature Stories, because, you know, brand storytelling has grown in terms of its importance, its use, um, you know, its, its understanding from, you know, brand leadership teams and, and how effective it can be. But it is often misunderstood as well. We, we see a lot of stories from, you know, certainly small businesses talking about, you know, the founder and, you know, where the founder has come from. Can you break down what brand storytelling is from your perspective? Well, uh, I got into the topic because my daughter, Jennifer, was teaching a course on stories at Stanford. And, uh, and I, I kept... Uh, dialoguing with her, I said, what is not a story? Because you ask people for their brand story, they'll give you, you know, five bullet points of some facts and, and benefits. Mm -hmm. And that's not a story. I mean, that's not the, the signature story. That's what I, the phrase I developed, because the signature story is, is a narrative. It's a once upon a time that something happened to some person or some organization or something. And, uh, and, and it turns out that stories are just such powerful communicators. I mean, right now, we have such information overload, such media clutter, such uh, perceived sameness in offerings that, uh, you know, people just, just uh, basically turn it off. Mm. They don't let themselves get exposed. And if they do, they greet whatever is there with skepticism and cynicism. And they counter argue. So, yeah. you, so how do you break through that? And and the answer is stories, because uh, stories first of all attract attention. If somebody says, "I I got a story to tell you," your ears perk up. Yeah, and you, and you listen to it, and then while you're there, you, you get involved. You don't counter argue. You don't say, "Yeah, but." You you just listen to the it's just it's a story. I mean, you don't argue with a story, mm. and and then. Uh, what often happens in the story is, is you discover some quality of the brand. Nobody is telling you that our brand is so great because you discovered it yourself. And, and that's, that's a way to learn mm. and remember. And, uh, and there's all kinds of studies. And it turns out that if you can embed a, a, a message in a story or have the story motivate some message or have the mess the story illustrate some message it is it's it's order of magnitude more effective not 20 percent, but 200 mm -hmm. it's just quite remarkable yeah 
And, and there's there's been we have learned so much about this again in in uh, in the last ten or twenty years through the study of neuroscience and through the, the the study of the brain and and it really does tap into you know the the primitive side of of humans and how we've kind of passed on information from generation to generation long before you know there was uh, complex language and, and books and there's a the, there's a great ted talk you've you've probably seen it for anybody else listening if you haven't seen it i definitely recommend going checking it out it's by a neuroscientist called yuri hassan and uh, the title of the ted talk is our brain um on stories or, or something along those lines and it really does show the effectiveness of our ability to remember story versus fact-based information because we simply store stories in a different part of our brain and we're able to connect dots. So it's so much more effective at landing in, in, in the memory. And that's at the end of the day, what branding is all about. It's about landing your message in the memory of your audience so that they're able to recall your brand. Um, now you've defined brand story or, or, um, a way to, to activate story as a brand's signature story. So what is a signature story? And can you give us uh, maybe one or two examples of a signature story? Sure. Uh, uh, well, a signature story is, first of all, a narrative. It's a once upon a time narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and second of all, it's, uh, you know, it, it's authentic and it's engaging and it has kind of a wow factor. And uh, that means that when you hear the story, you just don't go to sleep or you just don't pass it by, but you, you're you motivated to say, you know, this really is uh, something I should share it with somebody. Um, and or it, it really makes an impact on you. It really pops. And uh, there's all kinds of ways to get that quality. It can... You know, it be entertaining, it can be humorous, it can be informative, it can be uh, emotionally involving, it can be engaging. So there's a lot of avenues to create that that thing. But anyway, it's something that just pops out at you. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my sto- favorite stories is that of Lifebuoy Soap in India. They Well, first of all, Lifebuoy was, was started in the 1880s as, mm-hmm. uh, as a soap to... Uh, help you avoid disease. And there was a cholera epidemic in in London at the time, and it was started to combat that. And ever since then, it's been, uh, you know, uh, trying to get people to wash their hands to be uh, less sick, less subject to disease. And, uh, And so they started this program in India to, you know, again, get people to wash their hands. And about six, seven years ago, they said, well, this isn't doing that great. We can do better than this. So they sat down with a bunch of, of uh, their top creatives and their agency and, and the brand people for a couple of days. And they came up with the idea that they needed to elevate the program uh, and they needed to uh, uh, brand it. And they branded Help a Child Reach Five because two million kids under the age of five die each year, mostly from diseases that can be reduced by washing your hands right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and then the, the, the thing sort of took off, and they put the new program in three villages and made a video 
of a person in that village that was affected by the program, uh, a mother, a, a grandfather, and a, and a daughter. And uh, they got 44 million views. Wow. 44 million views. We're talking bar soap. They got That's... 44 million views. So, uh, you know, that illustrates a lot of things. It illustrates that if a, uh, you know, program is managed well under you and it draws upon branding principles, it can do well and it can do enormous goods for the, for the business brand, Lifeboy. Mm. I mean, can you imagine 44 million views? Uh, it, it, it's, it's just, it's unfathomable the, the amount of, of views that they got for, as you say, bar soap. And, well, and, this... and, and the, the, bring it back to stories, each of those three videos was a story. Yeah. Uh, that you got to know the person <coughs> intimately in each thing. You got to know the story behind the person, why they were doing these things. Each of them start out with a the first part of the three-minute video, you didn't really know why the person was doing what they were doing, but then mm. you learned. In, in the, uh, well, I'll definitely go and, and find some links to uh, to those videos <coughs> for the viewers, and I'll leave that in the show notes. So if you check out the yeah, show notes, uh, you just, you just go to YouTube and put in uh, Help a Child Reach 5. Help a Child child Reach 5. That's a, an easier way to do that. But as you said, you know, uh, we, we've, we've got a lot of uh, businesses where they believe that branding doesn't appeal to them because of the category that they're in or because of the product that they're selling. And it just goes to show that if, you know, if, if you can activate a brand like that to get 44 million views for a bar soap, then, you know, it, it's just a matter of creativity and kind of attaching the right story, uh, you know, that will appeal to, to a specific audience. So it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great indication of how powerful story is now you also within that signature story is there a process that brands can go through to to find what their signature story should be oh that's a really good question um and uh there's i've i've i am as years go by i get more and more convinced that story is so important it's the answer and uh and so I've talked to a lot of companies about that, a lot of nonprofits. And um, what happens is that generally they uh, they kind of accept the premise that story is powerful because, you know, they know it from personal experience or from common sense that it's going to be powerful. Mm -hmm. And uh, but they hadn't really thought about it before. So they, it's, it's pretty easy for except that present when somebody is, is pounding at them. Mm. But the second part of it is finding the story. And the third part of it is presenting it right. And those are tough for them. They're not equipped to do either one. And it's not easy to find a good story. No. Um, it just isn't. And so a lot of, some companies are hiring newspaper reporters and, mm. uh, Having them help them find stories and then uh, write them up. Yeah. Um, so, but but it, but it turns out stories can come from all sources, mm. and that's another um, plus or minus about stories. You can find them anywhere. I mean, one source is a customer's uh, or a, a company's heritage. There was a uh, appliance company in China in about 1986 that. Elevated a foreman to be CEO because the, fund, the country, the company was just failing. And uh, 
in his first week, a customer came in and said, his appliance broke down. And he said, no problem. They went to the warehouse to pick out a new one, and 70% of them were defective. So he brought all those 70% into the, the factory floor, and he got people's sledgehammers to, to destroy them. And, uh, and, and that started a company that now makes more appliances than any other in the world. And uh, it's higher. And, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and that sledgehammer is in a museum at their headquarters. <laughs> and all you have to do is to mention the sledgehammer, and people will be reminded about a core pillar of the higher brand. And that is they're only going to make top quality merchandise. <laughs> because he said at that, uh, at that event that, that, that's over. We're not making bad stuff anymore. Mm. And that started them on the road. And, and it just goes to show that stories can, as you said, stories can kind of come from anywhere. But I think the common denominator and the glue has to be the relevance of the story to the audience. Um, of course, you know, that story of the, the sledgehammer, it, it, it taps into this idea of we aren't going to take this anymore you know, we now stand for quality and, you know, we're going to put a sledgehammer to, to you know, the old way of doing things and this is the new way of doing things. And of course, the, the audience, that's going to resonate with them because that's what they want. They want somebody representing them that's not going to take defaulted uh, goods and, and make sure that the goods in, in front of them are, are, are quality. But it, it can also come from any other different source. It can come from the journey of the audience and the challenges that they go through on a day-to-day -day basis, or it could come from like the, the bar soap story, you know, a, a shared challenge that, you know, you want to make the audience aware of that they can overcome. So stories can come from many different places. And I know that you also talk about story culture. What is story culture and how do you instill that into a brand? Well, I think that's just the, the, sort of when the the uh, organization has accepted the role of strategic stories and they have created a uh, process to find and uh, and nurture them and then a process to present them they've got staff they've got a procedure so if a story occurs there's somebody to take it to and that person can uh, follow up and do the research and, and write it up so uh uh, so in a, in a story culture, people have got their eyes open looking for stories. Mm. And they've got a, a structure and a system to follow up when they find one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's great. If, if you know, uh, and, and this has to be internal. This has to be part of the core of the brand, whether that is uh, through the, the values and, you know, discussing this internally as as a way to kind of get the brand's message out there. And if, if you're able to bring stories in from different angles, different perspectives, it, they're just new ways to, to activate the brand and kind of leave a, a message that's, that's more likely to, to be remembered in the mind of the audience. Now, I, I want to kind of transition into uh, your, your book, Owning Game-Changing Subcategories. Now, for a lot of our audience, uh, you know, we, we, they, they would be freelancers, or agency owners dealing with small to, to medium-sized businesses. But what exactly is 
uh, a subcategory from from your perspective and and how do you go about creating a new one well it, it involves uh innovation and uh it, it involves what i what i called and i mentioned before must-haves you have to develop some sort of a product feature or benefit or some kind of relationship with a customer um, that might be based out of a shared value or personality or something or a way of uh, interacting with a customer. And, uh, and that has to become something that becomes important to the customer. It becomes something that uh, influences what they buy. So they only want to buy that subcategory that has that feature. And so my, uh, this is really a book about branding and disruptive innovation because uh, there's a whole bunch of books on disruptive innovation, but they largely ignore branding. Mm. And what I believe is that branding is critical to success in, in, with that kind of a strategy. It, it, first of all, you have to become the exemplar brand the brand that represents that subcategory. And then you have to use that exemplar brand status to position the subcategory, which means you have to dictate what uh, elements people are going to look for in, a, in, a, in, in their decision and, uh, and make sure that they, they uh, include one of these must-haves or two of these must-haves in, in that decision. And three... You have these days. You have to scale. You have to scale really fast. Mm. You can't just, uh, you know, it, do it slow and have a high price at the first. Uh, uh, it, it just won't work. And that's a branding issue to scale. It requires, you know, you know, getting visibility and credibility out there. It requires getting your message out there so people understand there's these must-haves available. And fourth. There, uh, you need to build barriers. You need to build barriers so that competitors won't benefit from this subcategory you've defined and managed. And you can do that by uh, having a large customer base quickly. Uh, you can do that by having a strong image that you have the must-haves, and this is a go-to place for that. It can happen by ongoing innovation where you're changing the goalposts on a daily basis, it can happen by owning this must-have, by branding a feature, branding a relationship, and something that you can then own. Mm. And I, I think that's a, a great uh, example of how business strategy and brand strategy complement each other because to scale so quickly in a, a new subcategory, the business strategy has to be talking to the brand strategy and vice versa because that kind of scale you know, needs business thinking and it needs brand thinking at the same time. So that's a, it's a great example of the point that you made earlier that they are complementary and they need to be speaking to each other. And it's really extraordinary. There must be a hundred books out on, on, on innovation and disruptive innovation and the importance of uh, setting up a new product and, uh, and by famous authors and they're really good books, but they really don't mention branding. Mm. And so, so you, you talked a little bit earlier about barriers and the importance of speed when getting in there, creating a new subcategory and getting those barriers up. What are the dangers of not, uh, you know, not activating 
that brand quickly enough, not having the structures in place to scale. What are the the, the dangers of of you know? Is it is it that the the your competitors can can come in, be more prepared, have the business and the brand strategy, and then own the subcategory that you've created? Oh yes, in fact, uh, research shows that almost all market leaders, almost all of them, were not the pioneers. Mm. The pioneers almost always um, get beat down by somebody bigger, more resources. Uh, they've, they've advanced the concept and, uh, and, you know, just, it's just quite amazing. Mm. And uh, a lot of people, uh, some people at USC have, have looked at some of the big successes and tracked them back to the early days to see if they were the pioneer. And it turns out they almost always were not. They were the first ones to get it right. They were the first ones with, with the, the uh, insight, the expertise, and the resources to, uh, you know, to dominate that market and let it grow. Mm. I, I think the, the perfect example for me, the one that jumps to mind for me, is in the MP3 space. There was a brand called Creative and they had a, a, a great MP3. There was a lot of MP3s before, but Creative was the first one to have a product that was, you know, it, it ticked a lot of boxes. Uh, and I actually had one of those, one of those MP3s. But, but then Apple came in with the iPod and their ability to scale, their ability to couple business strategy with brand strategy and something completely unique is, I think, is a perfect example of how you know uh, uh, being the the first to market is is not always a guarantee for success it is the the brand who acts fastest and and are able to put up those those barriers as yeah, as you uh, pointed out the ipod is a perfect example of that the ipod was introduced 2 years before apple it was introduced by uh sony the mp3 fact, yeah sony had two products one out of their um their computer division and one out of their uh, they had this audio division. Anyway, they they two years before Apple, they introduced at the big conference in Las Vegas an iPod, mm. and it was uh, it was two years too early. I mean, they they couldn't have enough songs on it because it wasn't big enough. It wasn't easy to use, and uh, uh, and it and it wasn't successful. And then. Then iPod came along. I think that uh, the very unappreciated genius of Steve Jobs was timing. Yeah. And also, he and, and another unappreciated quality of Steve Jobs was his ability to stay on top of technology. He really understood where technology was. And so he, his timing, in, in instance after instance, was, was impeccable. And I, Sony, I, I really like the, the example of, of Sony because I've referenced Sony when compared to Apple uh, before as well. Um, and and I've, I've just reached down there as you were speaking to pick these up. So, so these are wireless headphones from Sony that I bought about a year ago. Now, these compete directly with the AirPods. But as, as I, I mentioned in one of my YouTube videos, I do not know the name of this product. Now I can go to my Bluetooth here and I can tell you that it's the WF1000XM3. So the difference between how Apple brands 
and how Sony brands, um, you know, are, are, is 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 huge. You know, if if Sony branded the way Apple did, we would all know the names, the, the name of 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 this product, and it would make it so much easier for me to refer refer this to somebody else to to spread that word of mouth to have that, uh, you know. To, to pass on that brand equity and and you know it's 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 just a and as you said they they did it with the mp3 as well so so apple is a great example of uh you know assigning value to things through how they they brand them and, and building that equity up in 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 a way that that other brands just you know they 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 just haven't been able to keep up with apple from that perspective um I'd like to 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 now you've you've got all this wealth of experience. You've written all of these books. If and you can see over the the years from the you know the the times that we've gone through how much branding has changed to where we are now. What would be your top three tips for brands to get ahead in modern markets today? Well, I I, I I'm really biased, I guess, but. I, I just think that uh, these these two books plus the one I'm working on uh, are really important for the future. One is that that you have to understand uh, disruptive innovation and the roles brand play because it, that's that's virtually the only way to grow. I mean, I've, I've looked at a lot of categories and all almost all of the major growth surges comes from that. It doesn't come from better. My, my brand is better than your brand marketing. It just doesn't. Mm. And uh, so if you want to grow, I think in the future, that's uh, that's a necessity. And, and the other side of the coin is if you want to survive, if you want to maintain your relevance in the marketplace, which means visibility and credibility, you have to be making what they're buying. And if... Uh, you know, if you make uh, uh, you know, SUVs and uh, and uh, and then people start buying compact uh, uh, hybrids, it doesn't matter how much they love your SUV. They could say, you know, this is the best car I ever got. I love this car. It's uh, it's part of me. I'm going to tell all my friends that want an SUV that to buy this brand. But if they and their friends aren't buying SUVs anymore, they're buying compact uh, hybrids, it doesn't matter how much they love your SUV. And so you have to, uh, you have to play defense as well as offense. You have to understand who else in the marketplace is creating new subcategories for which you are not relevant. And you have to either get relevant or, or do something else to compete. Um, and then the second thing is, like, again, uh, I think with this era of information overload, media color, and perceived sameness, you, you need to understand stories and how to work at stories. And stories are not necessarily tactical. They're strategic, too, because uh, they, can, they can be the basis of an internal culture with employee stories or the stories that employees understand and learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can be strategic externally too, because they sort of cement a uh, a perception mm. or, or or a relationship. Mm. There's a famous story at Nordstrom's the department store that uh, 
a, Nor a new Nordstrom employee is in a, in a store in Anchorage, Alaska. Somebody came in with two tires that were bald. He said, these tires don't work anymore. I want my money back. And this guy gave him his money back. And, uh, and Nordstrom's had never made tires, although there was a tire store in, in the site of what, what is now a Nordstrom store. But anyway, uh, that story has been repeated again and again. I'd give talks to maybe 100 people in California, and I'd ask them, how many people have heard the Nordstrom story? And 60% of them would raise their hands. This was 35 years after the story occurred. There was no uh, advertising about it, no effort on Nordstrom's to communicate that story. And 60%, I mean, 60% in the audience. I mean, there's not even 60% in the audience that go to department stores. Mm. But uh, they knew that story about Nordstrom's. That Nordstrom's mm. stand behind their product. Their money back guarantee, they, they, they live by it. So uh, that's the second thing. And the third thing is the subject of my new book, which is going to be uh, the social programs and signature social programs and how you use them to build relevant brands. And uh, uh, and I think that that in the future, even today, people are demanding more than just functional benefits. They they uh, they they want to, employees want to work for and customers want a relationship with and investors want to buy companies that have a soul, that have a passion, that have a purpose, that have a, a coherent social program that is having an impact. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there, there's been so much talk about brand culture uh, in in recent years and, and uh, how important it is for the people to be connected to the work that we that they do because you know what appears on the outside of a brand is a reflection of what's inside the brand and you know having the right structures and systems in place so that everybody believes in what the brand is doing is one of the best ways to make sure that it's it's communicated externally so that the, the audience believes it as well um it's it's been uh, it's been an absolutely enlightening uh, chat, David, and and you know for those who I'm sure a lot of our audience already has at least one or two of your books sitting on their their bookshelves, but for for those who want to find out about your new books or kind of go back to the uh, to the to the old library, where's the best place that they can get in touch with you, find out a bit more about your books, and be able to jump on there and and, and buy some of them. Uh, I have a website, davidocker.com, yep. that I think has that, the, and the, the profit.com, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, that's a company I'm associated with, has a website that has that, but um, I don't know how easy it is to navigate because I don't go there very much. But I think, uh, yeah, think davidocker.com is the safe bet. Yeah, and uh, I, don't, I don't know how... Australia works very well, but in this country, these are the two books. But in this country, Amazon is 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 the uh, go to place. Yeah, you can get a book in a couple of days. Yeah, yeah. I I was actually just speaking um, with uh, with Rob Mayerson the other day, who who also had you on his show, and and he he brings everybody to his website, and then he redirects them to Amazon to go and buy the book. So Amazon is definitely. Uh, one of the best places to go and grab books. But if you want to find out 
what the books are, what kind of books uh, you can get. Go to davidacker.com. Um, or if you know what books you want to buy, jump on to, to Amazon and you can purchase them there. David, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. And if and when you're ready to uh, to release your new books and you want uh, to, to tell us a bit more about them at the time, I'll be, be happy to jump on with you again and have a chat about them. Oh, good. I look forward to it. Thanks for the offer and thanks for having me. No problem at all. Thanks again, David. We really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to learn more brand strategy techniques to level up your skills, make sure you check out brandmasteracademy.com. There's plenty of free resources and premium content for you to download and get you going. If you'd like to join our Facebook group full of like-minded brand strategists, all learning from each other, then find us by searching for the Brand Strategy Community, where you can find exclusive content for members as well. If you enjoyed this content, please be sure to give us an honest review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listened, and make sure you tune in for the next episode of the Brandmaster Podcast.